0: When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me.
1: I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that at any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it.
0: And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic.
1: If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. One million followers in 30 days. Sounds pretty crazy, right? Well, not if you're my guest today. Brendan Kane is a growth hacker for Fortune 500 companies, brands, and celebrities. Names you might have heard of, like Taylor Swift, Rihanna, Katie Couric, and that's just to name a few. He got his start in the entertainment world and elevated all the way to become the VP of digital for Paramount Pictures. He's now the best-selling author of 1 million followers, which you may have heard of, and he just released his second book, Hook Point how to stand out in a three second world. I'm not gonna lie, this guy is flat out brilliant and it would take 10 minutes to list out all of his accolades. So I'll let you do your own homework. Instead, let me just tell you what we cover during our conversation. We learn what a hook point is and why it's so valuable to understand how to use them. He shares how he got started working with Taylor Swift and also talks about why and how she's able to turn fans into brand advocates. We talk a lot about the importance of testing and he breaks down a three-part formula that he has for this. And we also talk about why we should be focused on pattern interruption in this noisy world that we live in. He also shares some of the misconceptions from his book, and we get super tactical as he breaks down the characteristics of shareable content, as well as how to use Facebook as a market research tool, including why we shouldn't be ignoring emerging markets. He also gives us a flavor of how he worked with Katie Couric on over 200 celebrity interviews. This one is absolutely jam packed, so enough of me talking, let's jump straight into the conversation. Brendan J. Kane, welcome to Inside Out.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, man. Let's get started with a really difficult one. I know you love tequila. So what is your favorite tequila and why do you love tequila so much?
0: Favorite tequila is Deleon. And the reason I like tequila is because it's the only stimulant when it comes to alcohol. So it's not a depressant. What do you want the
1: stimulant for? Just to, are you more of a person with high energy or what's the reason you chose that as opposed to a depressant? I
0: just feel like the next day you feel a bit better on it. But I honestly, I just kind of stopped drinking altogether probably six or seven months ago. I didn't drink that much to begin with, maybe like once every four to six weeks, but I just didn't really like the impact it was having on my mental and just physical body. So I just kind of just went without it. So you did the opposite of everyone else
1: when quarantine hit. You, everyone else starts drinking more. You start drinking less. I love yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All
1: right, man. Let's go back in time. I like you started as a production assistant. You moved here from Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. And when you got here, you were with Lakeshore, and that was an early insight that you had that really paved the way for your new book, Hookpoint. Which I want to talk about both books, Hookpoint and One Million Followers. Let's start with Hook Point. You did what most PAs aren't able to do, which is you created more value for yourself than others. Can you talk a little bit about what a hook point is and how you used a hook point to help you early on in your
0: entertainment career? Well, a hook point at its highest level is grabbing attention because we live in a very competitive and noisy world. There's over 60 billion messages that are sent out on digital platforms each day. It's like, You're no longer just competing against your direct competition. You're competing against every piece of content. So like it or not, you're competing against LeBron James. You're competing against Mm -hmm. Netflix, Kevin Hart, The Rock, all these people. So you have to find a way to win the first part of the conversation is if you can't get somebody to stop for those first three to five seconds, you'll never get to the ability to share your story, share your message, your brilliance, your product, or your service. So there's three core pillars when we talk about a hook point. One is grabbing attention, so is winning that first three to five seconds. And I'm not talking about clickbait here, because the second core pillar is just as important as what is the story that you tell once you have that attention. Because it's not just getting people to stop; it's getting people to stop and pay attention to everything that you want to say. So that's the, the, the second core pillar is the story that we're going to tell them. And then the third is do people believe? what we're saying? Do people trust us? Is it coming off authentic? Now all three of those have to come in together because if we don't grab attention, we never get to the story. If we grab attention and our story sucks, we've lost that attention. Now, if we grab attention and we have a good story, but people don't believe it, then it doesn't work. So my whole career and success for myself and the clients is really predicated off of winning that attention telling a compelling story that matches the way that I grab that attention and doing it in a believable way that earns the trust of people at scale or high profile people. So that's where, when you ask the question about the entertainment industry, well, how did I go from a PA making coffee and making copies to creating a digital division for a movie studio and running a, another digital division for another studio? It was using that tactic is I came out here to produce movies, but as soon as I got here, I realized that there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that move to LA every year to be a producer. So I was just one of many. So I needed to find that way. And when I went to film school, I wanted to learn the business side of film and quickly realized they don't teach anything about business there. So the most cost efficient way at the time and still holds true today is to form internet companies. So I just created a few internet companies while I was going to college just to learn and experiment. So when I moved out to LA and I noticed that me positioning myself as wanting to be a producer or somebody that was bringing scripts in was not unique, was not different, I had to take a step back. And I had to listen. I had to listen to all the people around me in the office. What were their concerns? what were their challenges? What were the questions they had? And I don't know if you've experienced this. When I worked in the film industry, there's an interesting inflection point. As soon as a film is done, all of a sudden there's a tremendous amount of anxiety and stress that comes up. It's like, oh my God, we just spent all this money making this thing. It's done. Now how do we make sure people show up at the box office? Because again, there's a lot of competition there. So at the time there was producers and directors and screenwriters asking, well, what about digital? What about this new form of social media? Cause this was back in 2005. So everything was reemerging after the dot-com bust. And the minute that I started hearing those questions, I could then offer a unique perspective. I could offer unique value because I had that experience in creating those internet companies so I could provide guidance. And that's ultimately what got my foot in the door and got me out of making coffee to actually attending big meetings with studios, with directors, with executives around the marketing of the films.
1: Yeah, and a film, as you've pointed out, it's like an instant brand, right? It's not a brand built over years, it's a brand built in a small window of time Before we get into that, I want to talk about your experience also in the same realm of how you create value for what you're doing. You effectively created the Wix before the Wix, and that afforded you the ability to work with Taylor Swift because she, as I think any fan of hers knows, she's and you pointed this out, she's very hands-on. She's all about her fans. She's very fan-centric, but she felt handicapped being able to put out or effectively create relationships with her fans, especially through a digital means. And so you started conversations with her mom, with her dad, and that ultimately led to a conversation with her and she started working with you. Share a little bit about that experience and how that helped to pave the way for both of your books, essentially.
0: Yeah. So you pointed out, people don't give Taylor enough credit. Yes, she's a superstar and things of that nature. But what people don't realize is that she's the reason for her success nobody else other than what she's engineered for her her career. Now, obviously, there's people that have helped her along the ways. But when she first started, she didn't have a major record label. She didn't have millions of dollars to market her music. It was her sheer intelligence and will that made her the global superstar that that she is today. And one of the, the things that I learned that really resonated with me and I've taken through the course of my career is that she really understood the power of forming brand advocates. So she understood each time she responded to a comment, each time she sa- signed an autograph, took a photo with a fan, not only did it turn that fan into a fan for life, it turned that fan into a brand advocate, somebody that was willing to share her message, her music with the world. And because all this was happening at the inflection point of social media, when back then, and it's still today, is when you share a piece of music, you're not just reaching five of the friends you go to school with, you're reaching hundreds, thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of people. So that was really an important learning lesson. And it's also interesting how she's evolved that model because in the beginning, she would respond one-to-one as much as she could and it was manageable. But today it's not possible because of the number of fans that she has. So what she does is she goes and delivers Christmas gifts to fans. She goes to weddings. She goes to birthday parties, she has fans at her house for a listening party. And then she tr- she turns that into content and distributes that. And what does that do? It goes viral and all the fans see that Taylor cares about us. Even though if it's not happening to that specific fan, that fan feels like Taylor cares about them. So she's found a way to master that at scale before anybody else has really figured that out. So I think that's one of the biggest learnings and takeaways that I gained from working with her.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because on a another show that I do, I was meeting with a a podcast host who's in the Podcast Hall of Fame. And he has a story about Taylor as well, where she would have these parties and essentially it was like a, almost like a wedding where there's round tables and she would go around table to table, have individualized conversations. That's amazing by itself. But afterward, she would follow up and I don't know how she did it. She probably had some way of doing it, but she would send a personalized note that highlighted some of the things that she talked about. And that kind of fan outreach where you are intimately relating to each individual fan. And now, of course, she's so big now she can't do it in that same way, but she's doing a sort of a hybrid where she's doing that, but now she's spreading it through social media. You are a strategist at heart, and you love to deconstruct things, reverse engineer them, tinker with them, see how they work. And I really love how you create a, a system or evaluate a process and then share that. You're, I think you have a teacher's heart. Where does that come from? Where does that passion originate from?
0: Honestly, I have no idea. I, it's just been kind of ingrained in me very early on. I would say that in the very beginning, I don't know that I recognized that I wanted to teach and inspire other people. I felt like I wanted to run a company and, you know, be the CEO of a a tech startup, and which I I did uh, do a few times. But I think that over the years, I just learned the, the biggest impact that I can have on people in their trajectory to success is really guiding them, providing them strategic roadmaps and guidance and support, sharing my information through books and podcasts and speaking and things of that nature. And it took a long time to figure that out. I had that skill set all along, but I didn't realize that that was essentially what my strength was, what I was meant to do. And, you know, luckily I did find that out because some people go their entire life without uh, figuring that out. Some people definitely find it sooner, but I'm just grateful and thankful that through this journey. I really found my calling and found the way that I can have the most impact in helping people all around the world.
1: Yeah, and your legacy will live on through the people that you help and empower. You, in your book, One Million Followers, if I could describe it in a sentence, it's to relentlessly test and learn what your audience will share with their friends. And I love the way you put it. You're, you're effectively growth hacking word of mouth. Can you give the audience an idea of what inspired the journey, including your original intention of the book? I mean, the book was an, not a something you did after the fact. That was really intentional for
0: the entire journey. Well, it goes back to winning attention for a larger conversation that you want to have with people. And that's where the second book hook point, how to stand out in a three second world is all about that. So when you ask the question about 1 million followers, why I did it, what the journey was, it was to develop a hook point that could generate that pattern interruption amongst all the noise. Cause if you type in social media marketing or business strategists in Google, there's billions of results. So, how do I find my way to stand out, win that attention, to dive in deeper? And I had spent about three and a half years developing the systems to scale follower growth in a very short period of time, working with journalists and celebrities and brands and professional athletes. And again, my mind is always going to how do I differentiate myself? How do I win that attention? And the idea came to me is okay. I've done this for all of these big brands and celebrities, but what about people starting from scratch? What about people starting from zero? Mm -hmm. And then it seeded the idea in my head is, well, I know I can generate a million followers in 30 days. So why not do that around myself as an experiment and leverage that as a hook point to drive a deeper conversation and teach people what they really need to have. So I called a literary agent Uh, that's represented over $5 billion with the book sales. He he represented the four dummy series. He manages like Eckhart Tolle. And I just said, this is the concept I have. This is the hook. Will you sign me if I do this and get me a publishing deal? And he said, yes. And then I also tested it with other people as well to make sure that it would resonate before I did it. But it was all by design to hook people in. Now, if I would have started with, the art of a b testing in social media or the mindset required to be successful in social media would it have the same impact no sure i could have sold some books or find some creative ways to position it but it's a million followers in 30 days is what grabs the attention in those first three to five seconds to dive deeper into the conversation
1: yeah in a lot of ways it's very much like the four-hour work week which you highlight and we'll get into that in a minute before we do, one thing I want to talk about is the testing, which you break down into three parts, right? It's coming up with a hypothesis, test, and then pivot. Can you break down why you need to have those three parts of your, your
0: testing equation? Well, if you're not testing, you're not learning. You know, and if you're not learning, how are you going to get better? As I see so much with social media, people just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again without actually measuring the results. And thus, they don't grow. And then they determine social media doesn't work for them or social media doesn't work in general. And then there's other people out there that just say, post as much content as possible. That's fine if you're learning, but again, if you're not measuring, if you're not creating a hypothesis with each piece of content, testing that hypothesis, seeing if it holds true. And if it doesn't create a new hypothesis, go through it again and doing that over and over again you have very little chance of being successful. And if you do miraculously go viral, if you don't have that core foundational standpoint, you won't maintain that success that you've had. And you've read the books and that's a reoccurring theme across all of the experts that I've interviewed. People collectively, I think we've amassed well over hundred million followers and 50 billion views. The through line is even when they've reached that level of success, they are constantly testing. They are constantly learning. They're constantly optimizing. So that's where it becomes critically important is with each piece of content, set the hypothesis. What is it about this piece of content that I'm about to produce that I think is going to work? Is it the format? Is it the structure? Is it the performance? Is it the cadence? Is it the tone? Is it the first three seconds? Is it the meme card? Whatever it may be, you can determine. But set the hypothesis, I think that this is going to work because of this. Then create a low-cost proof of concept that represents that to then test whether or not your hypothesis holds true. And if it doesn't, that's fine. Create a new hypothesis and run through it over and over again. Keep pivoting until you find what works. And then once you find what works, then attempt to see if it scales. Mm.
1: Blindly creating content without really understanding if it works or not doesn't serve you. What you're suggesting is keep creating content and learning from that content. And I think one of the things that we should highlight here is that sometimes the variation could be very small in nature. Can you talk a little bit about maybe give some examples of different tests that you've run and just the, the small nuance that you would tweak or
0: change? Yeah, it depends on the objective, whether it's follower growth, virality, lead generation, traffic, conversions, there's different tweaks that you can make. But with certain clients, I remember working with Katie Kirk, we may just change a few words in the headline, or we may, may test a different meme card. Other examples from an organic perspective, we may test the first three, five seconds of a video or test the colors of the captions. If it's like direct response, maybe we test the call to action or we test the phrasing of the call to action. So it, it's, there's so many different variables that you can play with. And what I always recommend to people is as much as you can handle, don't stress yourself out over it. But the more variables that you test, the more chances you have to win. and the more chances you have to learn. Yeah. And in your book, you talk
1: about, you know you don't need to lose sleep over this, right? And I think some people are thinking, oh, you're just going 24 seven to do this. But in reality, I mean, the difference in the variation from test to test could be so small that you could have a hundred variations of the same thing, or even a thousand variations of the the same thing. I want to talk about like what makes a really good hook point because you've listed, you know, things like as few words as possible, remains true to who you are and why you exist. Those are just a few, but what are some of the other building blocks
0: of a solid hook point? Well, let's talk about what makes a an ineffective hook point because oftentimes I think that's a a better place to start. So where people go wrong is in a few areas. One, they're trying to do too much. So again, a hook point is to grab that first 3 to 5 seconds and most people will just try and like vomit up everything about their brand, their product, or service, and it just completely overwhelms people. Your job in the first three to five seconds is just to get somebody to stop. It's that pattern interruption. So mm-hmm. imagine they just watched The Rock talk about working out. They just watched the Netflix trailer. They just watched Kevin Hart telling a joke, and then your content comes up. What's that pattern interruption that's going to get somebody just to stop? That is your first job and most people focus so much about their brand, their product, their service and that's all meaningful stuff. Don't get me wrong, you need it. But that's not typically what people are going to stop for in that first 3 to 5 seconds. So that's one big mistake. The second big mistake is saying the same thing in the same way as everybody else. And I'll give you an example of let's say you were promoting a meditation app. Now meditation's been around for thousands of years. You type meditation into Google, there's probably five billion results. So most people, when they're creating an ad or even a social piece of content, their headline or their meme card will say, Meditation is the key to success, or meditation is the key to stillness, or meditation relieves anxiety, or meditation relieves stress. So if I'm scrolling and I see that, I already know what it's gonna say because I've heard it. It's not to say that you as an individual are not value, or you as an individual may not have a unique take on it, but me my attention is very short. If I'm on Instagram, I have thousands of other pieces of content that I can consume. The minute I think I already know what this is going to say, unless it's a huge pain point that I'm suffering with right now, I'm just going to skip it. So how do we do that? We have to create the pattern interruption. Now, one of the tools that we use is subverting expectations. I'm not saying that we use it all the time, but it is a powerful tool and it expresses how to differentiate and create that interruption when people are scrolling. So the way that I would go about it is saying, you know, with the headline or the meme card and a meme card is the burned in text at the top of video saying something like meditation is a scam. I, most people, I don't hear that saying that. So I created that pattern interruption. So the, the arc would be one meditation is a scam to create that pattern interruption. And then I would dive into the story and I would say, did you ever feel like meditation is a scam? Well, I can tell you that I feel your pain if you do, because when I first started meditating, I felt like I was getting the wrong information. People were telling me that I needed to sit down and clear my mind, and every time I sat down, my mind would race, and I thought I was failing at it, and I thought that it was just not possible. So I want to just share with you a few tips that I learned as a non-meditator that felt frustrated, felt like it was a scam to get it work to work for me. So what did I just do with that? I created the pattern of interruption. I told a story. I was relating to the individual's experience. So hopefully that built the trust and believability in it for all of that to collectively come together.
1: Yeah, you're grabbing the attention, you're telling the story, you're getting them to believe. And if you hit on all those marks, then you've done your job. I think you highlight this, but something that's clickbaity is something that doesn't deliver, doesn't tell that story. There's no real substance behind it. And I think you also talk about the importance of running the balance of not being a contrarian for contrarian's sake. But yes, subverting expectations is powerful because we expect something in almost all cases. And when we're able to get something that defies those expectations, our attention is called to it. I think the way the human brain works is we are actually conditioned to ignore things that are the same, but we actually take note and pay attention to something that's different. So it makes a lot of sense just from a neuroscience perspective you have an exercise, which I love this, where you you say, okay, what if you were the editor of a magazine? Talk about why, what you would say to somebody in that exercise to help them understand the importance and the value of creating a headline or a hook point that will stand out.
0: Yeah. So one of the exercises, so in the book Hook Point, we have a five-step framework for developing a hook to help you stand out. And one of the steps is this magazine exercise. So I Tell my core, the person that I'm working with, my private clients, okay, let's imagine that the editor of the magazine in your niche, whatever that is, calls you and says, you're going to be on the cover of this magazine and you're going to be the only person on it. So what is the headline that you want to be in that magazine that represents what you want to convey to somebody? Now, imagine your core customer walking down a busy street with cars honking, people knocking into you, and then they pass a magazine stand. And there's 30 other magazines on that stand. What is the headline that's going to make somebody stop, pick out yours amongst the others, buy it, and read it? Because that's the difficulty of the world that we're living in today. And when we give this exercise and when we work with people in this capacity, we're not just saying, let's come up with one. Let's come up with as many as we can come up with. Let's come up with 10, 15, 20. And once we hit that wall, that creative wall, then we try and push through it and come up with more because sometimes when we push further, that's where we come up with the best hooks. And going back to what we talked about with the hypothesis test and pivot, we'll narrow it down to like the top two or three. Now with our experience, when we work with people, we've been doing it for 15 years. So most of the times we know which hook is going to work because we're sitting on so much data that we've collected and testing, but we'll still may work with a client to test two or three, but you still want to integrate and test. And going back to the other point is contextualizing it in different ways to give it more chances to win and more chances to learn on the best way to position it. Yeah. I mean, two of the things you talk
1: about, you talk about the one, people get lazy. They just stop testing or they don't test to begin with. Or two, they become so wedded to their content that they're unwilling to try different forms of content. It becomes their baby. There's two people that stand out. And I want to talk a little bit about shareability because they have really created huge following, and that is Jay Shetty and Prince EA, who I know
0: Prince wrote the forward for your book. What did they do right? They've done several things right. One is their performance and cadence really delivers a hook. So Prince EA, for example, can take a subject matter like environmentalism, which has been talked about millions, if not billions of times, and deliver it in such a beautiful way, in such a beautiful tone. He's an urban poet, and to, to generate 120 million views on the subject of environmentalism, all organic. So his ability to deliver through his performance, through his cadence and tone, draws people in. It's almost like you, you, you naturally, when you know certain people would tell you stories, just the way that they deliver it captures your attention. Jay Shetty, amazing storyteller. So what he did, and I believe he invented this, but I could be wrong, but one of the amazing things that he did with his content that I I think really helped him from a hook perspective is he would create videos that correlate to experiences that everybody has gone through. It's like, for example, if you're thinking about breaking up with your spouse or loved one, watch this video. If you've ever felt Anxious or stressed out, watch this video. If you're feeling really angry at somebody right now, watch this video. So, what he's doing is he's anchoring it to emotions and things that we've gone through and almost coming off like, hey, I created this video for you because I understand what you're experiencing. I understand I've been in your shoes. And that storytelling technique brings people in, builds that connection builds that trust. On top of that, Jay Shetty, like Prince EA, is a master at the way that he delivers his content, his pacing, his tone, really all comes together to not just grab the attention, but maintain it. Emotion is at the top of the list when it comes to
1: characteristics of shareable content. And you've just highlighted one of the things that they do exceptionally well. If you can make people laugh, you can make people cry, if you can help them feel motivated, there's a great likelihood they're going to want to share that. So that's one big piece. Another big piece that you talk about is this idea of social currency as being a characteristic of shareable content. Talk a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So social currency comes from a book called Contagious by Jonah Berger, who studied virality for 15 years. And what he articulates that if there's a piece of content that provides some useful information, whether it's a news article, a cooking recipe video, or a cooking recipe article, by you sharing that, you're almost attaching yourself, and I'm not going to say consciously, I think it happens both consciously for some people, subconsciously for most, by sharing it, you almost attach yourself like you created it. So it gives you this social currency within your circle by attaching yourself to a recipe, yourself to a funny joke, yourself to a an article with interesting data or facts in it, is you're putting your stamp on it and you're bringing it to the world thus you feel like you have a stronger connection to it and almost have some ownership in it. It's so interesting too, because I totally
1: get that because it makes sense. When you send something out, it's almost like this badge that you're sharing. Oh, I, I believe in this or this resonated with me. I think it'll resonate with you. And somehow you have, even though you had no role in creating the content, you're in a weird way taking credit for it. I want to talk about followers for a minute because anyone that reads the title of your book is like, wow, in 30 days. I think a lot of people, what they don't realize is there's a, and you talk about this, there's a cost per acquisition for followers. And Facebook in particular, you could get followers for as little as half a cent to 20 plus cents here domestically, or maybe somewhere in that range. For those that don't understand how you went about gaining followers, can you give a little bit of a snapshot into what that recipe looked like and maybe get a little technical with kind of the nuts and bolts of how you did it?
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of, I think, misconception around the book for people that haven't read it. First and foremost, In that I present multiple ways to grow. I present paid and organic. I provide some of the strategies we found successful, but I also went off and interviewed some of the top minds in the world because I fundamentally believe that not every strategy is right for every person. And I wanted to give people choices of what direction makes sense. In a few instances in the book, there's even strategies that contradict each other. Because people have different perspectives on what works. I'm just sharing what I've worked and what's worked for my friends and partners. And that's where I, there's so much misconception around the book and in people that haven't haven't read it to really dive in and and understand the substance of it. But one of the strategies that we used and the through line of the strategy is a hypothesis, test and pivot, which I'm not going to go into deeper because we've already covered that, but there's different expressions of that. So with Facebook, when I generated a million followers in 30 days, I was using the advertising platform as a market research tool to really test content at scale to see which ones had the most earned lift. Because the beauty of the advertising platform is it gives you the ability to seed content to people and then see if they take that content and then share it with everybody they know. So over the course of 30 days, I tested 5,000 variations of content, you know, literally every day testing more and more content to see which formats, themes, stories would get people to share so I can maximize earned lift out of the content that I was producing. Now that's just kind of one expression with Facebook. We have like Prince EA and other people that break down how they did it, did it with Facebook now 5,000 variations doesn't mean 5,000 pieces of content. It's like taking one piece of content and turning it into a few hundred variations, testing different variables, Instagram, much different. What we found is like Facebook, you push content out to the right audience. They share it and you exponentially grow out. Versus with Instagram, the strategy we found is distributing content out on other channels and driving it back. So we created a different system where we had a partner that has like 5 million followers on Instagram and we would rapidly iterate and test content that would distribute on his account to drive traffic back to ours. And we would see how do we need to structure it as a strong hook to get people to go and be like, I have to follow this account. And then when we found the winning variation, we had a network of 14 other accounts that all had millions of followers that would publish that winning variation and drive back. Now, just to show you that it's not just about reach and people think though, it's like, Oh, if I could just get an account to post about me, I'll generate hundreds of thousands of followers. Well, that's not the case. It's like, we have a partner that has 20 million followers. You post one piece of content that's not really optimized, not really tested, doesn't have a strong hook to it. It could correlate to maybe 200 followers versus you get a very strong piece of content that has a strong hook that really motivates and inspired people by watching it, being like, I have to follow this account it could generate up to 25,000, 30,000 followers up that single post. So just that comparison of 225,000 just shows you the importance of content and the importance of designing content in a certain way to get people to perform the specific action that you're going after. Yeah, I'm glad you
1: highlighted the misconceptions because I think that's a really important point to bring out that the book's not just about the one approach, it's about multiple approaches and it's different even for Instagram. You said on Instagram, I think 60,000 followers a month was the best that you did, I think. And you know, you could go faster on Facebook and I also really appreciate that you're talking about Facebook as a market research tool and if there's something I want to double click on, it's that Uh, one of the things that struck me as an insight is that you start wide and then kind of narrow from there. For example, I think you said like 18 to 65 men and women, and then you get more narrow and more narrow. Why do you use that approach with Facebook to kind of hone in on the the target market? Because I think a lot of times businesses, they might have a a pre assumption of who their target market is, but it may be entirely wrong. And until they do the testing, they don't know.
0: Yeah, it depends on the business. Like some businesses, If they already know this is my core target demo and it's very small, like let's just say I'm going after CMOs of companies that have 10,000 employees or more, yeah, we're probably not going to test beyond that. But everybody else, when we're trying to work for scale, we always like to go broad, see where the auction, the algorithms push it and see if we can learn something from it to dial in where we go with it next. So I'll give you a case study around this. And again, this is our methodology, our process that we found to work for us. I've seen people be successful in other ways, but I think this case study will demonstrate what I'm talking about. So I have a friend that's one of the top branding and creative directors in the world uh, and came to me with amazing content that he produced for a Mother's Day campaign for a company called Chatbooks. They're one of the top online photo printers in the world. They've, at the time they had over a million subscribers on their platform. And they said, we want to take this creative and we want to target to moms 45 plus. And I said, let me just test it. Let me go wide and see what happens. And I did that test. And what happened was in the data, I saw that it was actually resonating more with females 18 to 25. And when I dug deeper into it, what I saw was that it was these females 18 to 25 were tagging and sharing it with their mothers. So what we were doing is we were actually hitting our core demo in a far more powerful way instead of us as the company sharing this with you. It was this emotional bond between a daughter and a mother. So that connection was much more powerful and it resonated more with who we were going on after. In addition, we were introducing it, the product to a completely new audience that wasn't really tapped into before. So oftentimes we get so caught up in in the core person that we want to influence that we don't think about the people around them that cause that influence another example is uh the i'm not sure if you're familiar with the real estate company uh keller williams uh they're the top uh, Mm -hmm. residential real estate company in the world think they have 180,000 agents and i found out that gary keller the founder was referring my books to all of his agents and what happened one was is one of his top agents found my book implemented it had tremendous success with it and then shared it with Gary so for me I wasn't even attempting to do this but if it was me trying to get to Gary like me targeting Gary directly is going to be very very difficult to make that happen i'm not going to say it's impossible it's definitely possible but I reached him through his inner circle with people around him, people he trusts. So oftentimes I, I feel that people overlook that fact is the people, the consumers or the big strategic development deals that you're trying to close may not come from the direct interaction with that person. It may come from people around that person or the people of that influence. Again, it could be a, a partner or it could be a, a daughter in the case of chat books.
1: You influence the influencer who then shares it. And I I love the examples that you gave because I think all too often we get married to this very small, what we perceive as our demo. They may be our demo, right? Like the example that you gave, maybe it is that age demo, but to go through the the children, daughters, that's so much more powerful because as you know, word of mouth. There is nothing stronger than getting a recommendation from someone else. I've already recommended your book and you know, you're know you on my podcast. I've read both books. I've already recommended the book because it's. I'm like blown away by it. And I just think there's so much value there. So I have a mastermind. I recommended to them. Who knows who they recommend it to? I appreciate the fact that you touch on something, not even touch on it. You bring awareness to the power of testing. However, people, companies, they're resistant for one way or another. They're, they're either resistant. It may be that they don't know how to do it. And I, as I pointed out earlier, and as you pointed out, they become lazy and they stop doing it. What's your advice for companies that they just don't get it? They're not doing the testing. Either they don't know how or they're giving up. Because I think that's really one of the core messages I want to make sure that I help to share. Because without the testing, all of this falls apart. Based on what I've learned from you is the testing is it's critical. Without that, everything else is go aside. Yeah. I mean,
0: why do people resist things? I mean, they resist things because they get overwhelmed. They get scared. They don't know how to do it. So that's typically where I see that happening. I mean, there are people that are overstretched with their time and things of that nature. The message that I convey to companies is, listen, you have to test. You have to innovate. Now, the way that you do that can come in many different forms or expressions. doesn't mean you have to test 5,000 variations of content like I did. I'm a huge believer in success momentum, taking tiny steps to a larger goal. So even if you just create a spreadsheet and just started tracking your organic posts, each post, what comments, likes, shares they get as a starting point, just to build that success momentum to getting to higher levels of complexity with your testing, or you hire somebody to do it for you. Or if you're the owner of a company or the manager of a team and your team is not willing to do that, either get them the education to see if they pick it up, or it may be time to move on from that person to move in that direction because either if you're starting out, you're going to struggle to reach the first level of success. Or if you're at the highest levels you risk becoming obsolete. Like you look at what happened with the Blockbuster versus Netflix, not Blockbuster was an $8.6 billion valued company. They could have acquired Netflix for 50 million, but they chose not to innovate, but just duplicate what Netflix was doing. And that's where they lost. And ultimately Blockbuster's bankrupt. And, netflix is a 100 billion dollar plus market cap and mark netflix is a company that does not rest on their laurels they are constantly testing they invest 17 billion dollars a year in content now that investment is testing because they only need five percent of their shows to work in order for that to pay off same with amazon amazon and jeff bezos is not resting on his laurels there was an interview i just watched with him recently that said core business and profit in the past has been like AWS and other platforms is not amazon.com. And he said that he has lost billions of dollars testing different concepts and different things around the amazon.com offer, because he knows that's the future of where he's going. He knows that he has to constantly be on the cutting edge, Otherwise he'll become obsolete. It's the same with Facebook. It it, it drives me nuts. Every time people say Facebook is dying, Facebook is dead. This isn't MySpace. This isn't Friendster. They're working on a whole different level and nothing against like MySpace or Friendster. They paved the way for everybody and they did a, a brilliant job doing it. But all the tech companies today are constantly testing and iterating to get better, to get smarter to hook you in, to use your
1: platform longer. If you're not testing, other companies are, and the this landscape is uber competitive, pardon the pun, and companies will be left in the dust, much like Blockbuster was with Netflix. Another area where you talk about investing, some of the really smart companies are investing in emerging markets. And this is a really, really interesting insight. I wonder if you could speak to that, India being one that comes to the top of the list as well as Brazil for their sharing culture. But what are some of the things we should be thinking about when we look at emerging markets?
0: Well, the fascinating thing is, I had a whole chapter in my first book about this is, especially in America, there's this ego about North America, that we're the only people on the planet. We're such a small fraction of the world's population. And you look at India, most people in North America will say, oh, those people aren't valuable. Oh, if you have a follower in India, it's not valuable. It's not meaningful. Well, first off, India is going to be the world's largest population in less than five years. Second off, if you look at the smartest people on the planet, they're investing in it. Now, just to show you how valuable India is, is TikTok was recently banned in India. And TikTok had already invested a billion dollars into India, and the projected loss is $6 $6 $6 billion projected loss because they get banned in India. Facebook and Instagram's number one audience is in India. You look at like Tesla, Nike, Coke. I did some work with Ikea. They're all investing billions into that because that is the next level of scale. Now, if you're a local business or a restaurant, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Or if you're a company that ships physical products and you can't ship to India or an emerging market, it doesn't make a difference. But If you're in entertainment, if you're a podcast, if you're somebody that all of your fulfillment is done online, then there is a tremendous opportunity that I don't think is going to be there in a few years because more and more people are catching on to it. They are.
1: And what's happening is the companies that are not seeing this and that are so, as you've said, Sort of self-centered in this <laughs> ego mode of the United States being the end, the beginning, and the end of the world, they uh, they will miss out on those opportunities. I, I want to talk about a few companies that come to mind. Tesla being one of them. Uh, I don't know if you happen to know my backstory. I led global training for Tesla in the sales area, and you highlight Tesla specifically the Cybertruck in Hook Point. Why do you believe that was such a smart move? on Elon's part to create a car that many believe is ugly, but that surprised so many people at the same time and got so many people talking about it.
0: Well, th- I think the brilliance of Tesla is Elon was willing to do something that no car manufacturer was ever willing to do, and that's to put a concept car on the factory line and actually produce it. And it started with the first Tesla. I mean, just even looking at the interiors of Tesla, it's remarkable, it's a hook. So you talk about the, the Cybertruck, you know, some people think it's the coolest looking thing. Some people think it's the ugliest looking thing. There's, there's hypotheses out there or theories that he designed it to be ugly on purpose uh, to grab that attention. The thing is with the Cybertruck, it's not like anything you've ever seen before. And if he designed a Tesla truck that looked like a Ford F-150 and just had a Tesla logo on it, it would not have the impact that the Cybertruck did. I mean, the Cybertruck set records for pre-orders. I think it generated like 250,000 pre-orders in like the first few weeks. That's never been done before. And the design of it is what hooks people in. Regardless of whether you love it or hate it, you couldn't help. But again, the pattern interruption is if I'm swiping up in my feed and I see a Ford F-150 and then I see the Cybertruck Which one's going to create that pattern interruption? Even if you love Ford 1F50 trucks, you can't help but stop and look at the Cybertruck. So I think that that's the brilliance of what Tesla's foundation is built on is we're not just going to think differently in terms of concepting what the future of cars are. We're going to think differently. We're going to produce that concept, and we're actually going to sell it. Like that is just the brilliance of what Tesla's done.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you talked about with regards to meditation, for example, you you take a commonly held belief, flip it on its head, whether that be, hey, all pickup trucks are supposed to look like this. Or uh, when you rent a video, you pay late fees. No, Netflix started uh, no late fees, right? And so you, you highlight that the hook point doesn't necessarily have to be the tagline, doesn't necessarily have to be the the way in which they conduct business, but sometimes it can. Is there a formula that you recommend um, to help somebody who is looking for a way to differentiate themselves, to stand out, to make sure that they are doing something that will grab people's attention? Is there one thing
0: that you think is most critical to do that? Well, in the book, we gave them like a five-step framework to follow with that. I I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is first understanding that we live in a world where everything has been said and everything has been done before. Now, I know that for creatives out there, it's going to sound harsh, but just even looking at the movie industry, every story has been told. The story that you see in Avengers has been told a million times, but they contextualize it in different ways. So really think about, okay, I'm not the only person that's a meditation teacher. Maybe my technique is unique or my app is unique, but I have to contextualize it in a certain way to show that differentiator. And first understanding that so that you can be honest with yourself that my subject, my niche, my audience, again, like Elon Musk, he didn't invent the car. He didn't invent the truck. He reinvented what it looks like. He contextually wrapped it in a unique and effective way. So that's the way that we've got to look at our message and break out of everything that's been said, everything that's been done before. Again, Elon does not design another truck that looks like the Ford F-150. He broke out of that mold to stand out. So that is the most important thing is to look, study your competitors. Go into Google, go into the Facebook ad library, see how people are contextualizing your, your industry, your products or services, and then reverse engineer how you can stand out from those, how you can flip it on its head. Yeah, novelty matters. And it doesn't mean you need to reinvent or create a category.
1: In the case that you've just said with the pickup truck, it's not a new category. Pickup trucks have existed for a very long time, but he's doing it in a new and novel way. One of the things that stood out from your time with Katie Couric is that when she would interview celebrities and people with massive star power, that alone wasn't what would bring the views. Instead, it was what they talked about. And can you share share a little bit about how that helped to create more attention for her interviews, what your approach was instead of just saying, oh, I'm interviewing
0: this celebrity. No, this is what that celebrity said. So we designed it. We designed it with the hooks in mind. So when I started working with her, I she was going from television to a digital first strategy, which is completely different consumption behavior. Because with television, there's a habitual nature set up so people turn on the today show every morning while they're making breakfast, preparing for the workday, And they'll watch whatever's there versus digital and social, like you're fighting for attention with each piece of content that habitual nature is not formed with specific content creators at scale. I'm not going to say it's not formed at all, but when you're talking about critical mass, it's not really there. So what I looked at is let's stop asking questions. And let's start designing what does the output look like? What is going to create that pattern interruption? What is going to be the unique clip? What is going to be a unique headline that's going to get somebody to pay attention to this interview? Because we saw very early on, it's not, it's not just, Hey, you interview the biggest celebrity in the world. And all of a sudden people are going to pay attention because every outlet is covering every big celebrity in the world. Think about Kim Kardashian, for example, she's on every imaginable website, Podcast, video, or whatever you want, there's millions of pieces of content. So we decided to really design an entire interview with the hook points in mind. So then when we we had the final output, we had the output that we were looking for that we hypothesized would create that pattern interruption to get people to stop. I did 220 interviews with Katie, ranging from DJ Khalid to Chance the Rapper, to Jessica Chastain, to Jay Leno, to Dolly Parton, Across the board and tested about 75,000 hooks over the course of those 220, and just really got a good handle on how to structure the output of the interview to not only get people to stop, but get people to share at the highest possible velocity.
1: Yeah. And at the core, sharing is where these things really pick up the momentum. Your book, 1 million followers, and your book, Hook Point, are stellar. Please check them out. You could go to your website, brendanjkane.com. I know you also have your email, bkane at com. Both the book websites, hookpoint.com, and 1 million followers with the one spelled out.com. You're, of course, on Facebook and Instagram, both with over a million followers. Facebook is at Brendan James Kane, and Instagram is at Brendan Kane. You're also on LinkedIn where else could
0: people find you and what else would you like people to know about how they can work with you well the primary work that we're doing with people is designing hook points so we have a whole agency around that where myself and my team develop that for people and really i always recommend uh, people start with the hook point book uh, even if they want to focus on follower growth because if i gave you a million followers tomorrow and you can't master the art of attention you're going to struggle to get meaningful reach and engagement with that audience that you accumulated. So, I really highly recommend starting with Hook And Hook Point, we talk both online, social, and offline as well. Yeah. And in your book, you highlight some questions that
1: Prince EA asked himself. He says, Why am I on the planet? What can I give to others? What will make me happy? If I had five years left to live, what would I do? And if I had one year left to live, And whatever I did was guaranteed to be successful, what would I do? I love that you highlight those in your book. And I really appreciate the mission that you're on. Brendan Kane. thank you for being on Inside Out. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.